Mic check. Mic check. One, two, three, four, mic check. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Thanks so much for coming out for this celebration today. I'm Carl, your friendly crowd warmer. Well, are you ready? Are you ready for Bench Talk, the week in science? The Bench Talk team is really grateful that you came out today and they've got a great time planned for you. Of course, you know why we are all here today. We're celebrating Bench Talk being on the air for three full years. We're recording this show tonight for broadcast at a later time. So keep displaying all of the enthusiasm you've been showing so far. You are fantastic. I can certainly tell that you are a fun-loving crowd. After all, anyone who listens regularly to Bench Talk is pretty cool, right? So there are just two rules for our show today. No profanity, right? And please, no heckling the scientists. You might become shocked or overexcited. After all, that's what science does, doesn't it? But keep your heckling for the science deniers out there, right? Not the scientists. So are you ready to get started with this show? Okay then, here's our host for the evening, everyone's favorite, the grand dame for this celebration, Miss Bella Annabella. Thank you. You're so kind. Thank you. I'm so proud to be here today hosting this special episode of Bench Talk, The Weekend Science. Bench Talk is just my favorite show of all time. You know why we're here, right? Bench Talk has been on the air now for three solid years. Yes, it was August 6, 2018, that Drs. Ashley Best and Dave Robinson introduced this show to Forward Radio. I remember it well. It was a story about football concussions, a story about viral DNA that worked its way into our chromosomes, and you all remember that last topic, don't you? Of all the harebrained topics, believe it or not, Professor Robinson spoke about the history, of all things, the sweet potato. <laughs> but the show has grown a lot since then, hasn't it? Bench Talk the Week in Science has a bevy of fantastic professionals to report on the latest science stories. First, it was Dr. Trent Garrison who joined the Bench Talk team. He's a geologist, so he managed to get our minds down in the dirt a little. <laughs> Then the astronomer in the group joined. It was Professor J. Scott Miller. He started producing stories about the night sky every month. I'd like to gaze at the stars with him some night. 
that's for sure. <laughs> then the poet with the know it, the out of sight of book writer, our very own Bench Talk Laureate, Leslie Moise. Then there was John Dixon with his ever so relaxing voice and smooth educational style. John's always got something to teach me. <laughs> and our most recent addition to the Bench Talk team, Amanda Fuller. Great interviews throughout. That Amanda's got connections. Are there any scientists in Kentucky she doesn't know? I mean, really. <laughs> anyway, Bench Talk, the weekend science is three years old now, and we are going to celebrate. First, we have some recorded greetings from Bench Talk team members. Let's hear those now. Hi everyone, Trent Garrison here, president of Kentucky Academy of Science. We can't thank the team, Dave, Ashley, Scott, and everybody else who has worked on the podcast enough for the countless hours of everything they do from podcasting, editing, researching, everything else. Bench Talk This Week in Science, I think, is a true Kentucky treasure in the science community. So, here's to three more years of Bench Talk. Hi, my name is Scott Miller, and I have produced stories for Bench Talk in the past. I want to thank all of you listeners and hope your knowledge in science has been enhanced in listening to our program. I also appreciate Forward Radio for the opportunity to share with you, the listener, scientific tidbits. That opportunity and your listening allows all of the contributors to share that which they have come to enjoy. Hello, this is Dr. Leslie Moise, and I have written poems and stories that have been on Binge Talk before. I want to thank our listeners for listening to Binge Talk and thank Ford Radio for sharing Binge Talk with the world. Hi, this is Amanda Fuller from the Kentucky Academy of Science. I'm so pleased to be a member of the Bench Talk team and to bring you stories from our member scientists all over Kentucky. Our monthly Bench Talk Live series is a partnership with this show and podcast, and it has helped inspire some of our members to bring their own stories to the radio. Find out more about the Kentucky Academy of Science at kyscience.org. Happy birthday to Bench Talk, and thank you for bringing more science into our lives. Dr. Dave here. First off, I wanted to thank Ford Radio for making this show possible. WFMP is a great radio station, and we're proud to be included in their lineup. I'm also extremely grateful for all the contributors to Bench Talk over the years, whether they've contributed one story or 50, as in the case of Scott Miller. But most of all, I want to express my appreciation to our listeners for tuning into the show in the first place. You inspire us, and you keep us on our toes. Thank you, thank you. P.S. I also wanted to thank Mary Williams for her great performance on the show today. Bravo, Mary! That was great! Later in the show, we've got some more recorded congratulations, but this time from the White House and the NIH. So, stay tuned for that. But first, let's listen to some highlights of the show from the last three years. Dave, I have a question for you. How much of you do you think is virus? 
Hmm. How much of your genome is virus? I don't know. I had flu a few weeks ago. Are you <laughs> counting that? Other than that, oh, I would say maybe, oh, you know, 20%. Higher. <laughs> 30%. Higher. <laughs> oh, okay, half. <laughs> Close, yeah. So... I mean, this is a huge number, but scientists think between 40 to 80% of the human genome arrived from some sort of archaic viral infection. That wow. number is crazy. I mm -hmm. didn't expect it to be that high. Did you? No, that makes me feel small. <laughs> it does, <laughs> um, but that's okay. So our genome is, is shaped by viruses, and, and viruses are genetic parasites. So they have a genetic code, and the virus will infect a host cell, and it will hijack them and force them to reproduce their own viral DNA so it can go on and infect other cells. So it basically makes our host cells little factories for making more viruses. So this process is usually harmful for us, like when you get the flu, but every once in a while, uh, these viruses can inject their DNA into our genome. And then usually that's just benign. Sometimes they become useful enough to hang around. So this paper came out recently where they were looking at some of these ancient viral proteins that have kind of lingered in our genome and they found one um, that's doing very important work in our nerves that seems to be from very ancient viral um, DNA. So that was acquired by four-legged mammals quite a long time ago. And so what this virus is doing, or this viral DNA, is making a protein that will package up genetic information and then send it out to the nerve to the next nerve cell. So it's, it's doing this very viral function um, that we think is important for consciousness. Wow. Now, um, is this anything like, anything like computer viruses? <laughs> kind of. I mean, <laughs> the virus wouldn't exist without us, just much like a computer virus wouldn't. But it's, it's doing this very helpful thing uh, in our cells. But this event happened twice in history. Worms and flies also acquired this viral protein arc separately in a separate event. And their body also uses them. So... Somehow in us, it's adapted for consciousness, where in these other organisms, it hasn't. So there you go. The domestication of sweet potatoes happened first in Central America and northern part of South America about 5,000 years ago. And another domestication event happened in the South Pacific Islands much more recently than that. Now, there are some researchers who have offered an alternative explanation for this occurrence of sweet potatoes in the South Pacific. That is that sailors from the islands did indeed travel to South America and collect the sweet potato and take it back. But the reason that those sweet potatoes on the islands are so much different genetically than the South American potato now is that the South American potato somehow disappeared. So what you're seeing in the sweet potato of the islands is a remnant of the original sweet potatoes that occurred in South America. And some botanists are even blaming Christopher Columbus and all the Europeans that followed him afterwards, maybe altered the environment enough to make the native sweet potato there go extinct. And so that would be the explanation about why it now it appears there's only one domestication event instead of two domestication events. So the great sweet potato debate is not over. There's still these two conflicting ideas about how the Polynesians might have attained the um, sweet potato plant. 
But it's an interesting project. First of all, it shows you how much genetic diversity there is within sweet potatoes. And this is very valuable information for agriculturalists and breeders who might use these different gen genotypes to develop new varieties. So that's very valuable. And the other interesting thing about this research is it allows us to speculate about ancient Polynesians traveling thousands of miles in these primitive boats going to South America. It's provocative because if there was agricultural exchange between these two peoples, is there likely to have been cultural exchange as well? And so it's, a, it's fascinating to think about. So the next time you're snacking on a big plate of sweet potato fries, it gives you something to think about. I love beech trees for their wide spreading crowns of corrugated leaves, for their sweet nuts that feed bears, squirrels, and white-tailed deer. But most of all, I love their smooth gray bark, an invitation to passing hikers, artists, lovers to carve their initials and gain immortality for as long as the beech tree stands. I wanted to give you a little bit of background about coal fires because there are coal fires around the world. There are plenty of them. There are 30 some in Kentucky. There are over a hundred in Pennsylvania apparently. Now coal fires have been around since we've had plants. So we're going back three, four hundred million years ago. So we can dig up a sample of coal in eastern Kentucky and you can see evidence of coal fires going back that long. That, you know, could have started by lightning strikes, forest fires, different different things. But there's also what's referred to as spontaneous combustion, not the type that you hear about in, you know, like these ridiculous shows or anything, but there really is such thing as spontaneous combustion in coal. In a coal-fired power plant, which is different than, than a wild coal fire, in a coal-fired power plant, what you have is complete combustion. So it's, the coal is burned at a very high temperature and the coal is completely combusted that leads to basically the only thing coming out of the smokestack is carbon dioxide and water vapor. In the case of a wild coal fire that's unregulated out in the forest in the middle of nowhere, you probably have incomplete combustion. So incomplete combustion can be really bad because it leads to these heavy hydrocarbon formation. When I say hydrocarbon formation, they're basically two groups of hydrocarbons. You can have BTEX, benzene, toluene, ethylbenzene, and xylenes, and those are the lighter, more volatile ones, and then you can have the PAHs. There are lots and lots of PAHs, hundreds of them, but PAHs are heavier, and uh, some of them can be quite toxic. So we wanted to look at uh, specifically the PAHs in, in soil and water quality. Now, the long story short here, and was a bit of a surprise to me, is the fact that we did not find any groundwater contamination at any of these sites. Most of the research, as I mentioned earlier, had been focused around air quality. So the greenhouse gases that's, that are coming out of coal-fired power plants, yes, we, we know about that, that's well studied. But what about greenhouse gases, you know, carbon dioxide, methane, and so forth? What about those greenhouse gases coming out of coal-fired vents? What's been concluded in scientific papers that it's with somewhere between 1 and 5% of the greenhouse gases that we currently have in the atmosphere are the result of these wild burning coal fires. A little background. The Hubble constant is courtesy of Edwin Hubble. Among his many discoveries, Hubble determined from his study of galaxies that the farther away a galaxy is from us, 
the greater its velocity away from us is. In other words, if one looks at those galaxies that are outside our local group of galaxies, those other galaxies are moving away from us, and the farther away they are, the faster they are moving away from us. Now, if we get back to Edwin Hubble's initial discovery, a plot of distance versus recessional velocity is pretty linear. Linear graphs, if you recall your high school algebra, have something called a slope. The slope is a measure of the change in the vertical axis value with respect to the change of the horizontal axis value. The slope, in the case of Edwin Hubble's graph, is called the Hubble constant. Using the value of that constant, we can determine the distance to a galaxy if we can measure its recessional velocity. But there is a more fundamental reason driving the search for a better and better value of Hubble's constant. If one plays with the units mentioned above, one eventually finds that the units are actually inverse time units, inverse seconds, for example. That implies that if we take the inverse of Hubble's constant, we come up with a time. According to the Big Bang model, the time this determines is related to the age of the universe itself. And this becomes the real driving force for finding a good value for Hubble's constant. So we have a quandary. We have a cluster of values of Hubble's constant that range from about 67 kilometers per second per megaparsec to as much as 74. And as I indicated, these would then lead to different ages of the universe. And so the chase continues. Theorists will continue to refine the current models of the universe to give a better target value for Hubble's constant. Observational astronomers will look to the various objects that have been used for distance indicators to make sure we have a better understanding of those objects. NASA plans an upcoming mission, perhaps launched in the mid-2020s, that will enable astronomers to better explore the value of Hubble's constant across time and space by collecting even more data from these various distance indicators. And, as I said, as we continue to strive for better precision, we will increase and further refine our knowledge of the universe. Mars Quakes The low shutter of the planet's surface captured by NASA. Seismic activity subtle as breeze and earth trees. Discovery. The red planet moves not just through space, but within itself. Thrilling. Even if recordings by insight required 60 times amplification for us to hear. I wonder where the quake occurred. In the southern highlands? Northern plains? Personally, I hope it happened on the Tharsis Plateau. Tharsis. The exotic name captures my imagination, but that's just me, lulled by the allure of language. Mars lacks Earth's abundance of tectonic plates. The brick-colored surface of our neighboring planet boasts a still fiery core, one that shimmies, quivers, and trembles, that vibrates the scarlet surface. The quake only registered 2.5 on the Richter, so gentle we wouldn't feel it even if we stood right next to InSight. Not even though it lasted 15 minutes. But oh, the tingle of listening to it from 33.9 million miles and 300 days away. 
There's been a lot of media coverage recently regarding the COVID-19 crisis, and there are commonplace arguments on the internet regarding face coverings and their effectiveness. Unfortunately, we've also seen media coverage given to persons who don't agree with scientific consensus regarding the dangers of the novel coronavirus. Given the amount of falsifiable misinformation that is being spread widely regarding the COVID-19 crisis, when we pair in the addition of an already vocal anti-vaccination community, there's a great need for the scientific community to prepare for this debate ahead of time. In order to prepare for a discussion in which we will be using science-based and evidence-driven facts to try and communicate, it's helpful to understand why conspiracy theorists have the beliefs that they do. In a 2017 publication by Karen Douglas et al. titled The Psychology of Conspiracy Theories, the psychological factors behind someone's adoption of a conspiracy theory are laid out in that they can be epistemic, where the believer of a conspiracy theory might go so far as to believe that the overwhelming evidence of the scientific community itself is a conspiracy theory, which can lead to existential motives for believing in a conspiracy theory, which will give the person a feeling of safety. There's been a correlation found between people having high anxiety levels or feeling powerless upon their time of adopting a conspiracy theory as well as social motives where conspiracy theorists will find a sense of community within a group of fellow believers. The journalist Alex Moshakis actually went to a Flat Earth convention and noticed many of these things in person. Many members of the group of Flat Earthers referred to their moment of realization as an awakening. Several members of the group spoke openly about having a traumatic incident in their life shortly before they began to become open-minded towards the flat earth ideas. In a brilliant opinion piece, Elfie Scott analyzed how science communication has lost its sense of empathy. It can be very frustrating to debate something as clearly false as the flat earth society. It's equally frustrating to have the true consensus misrepresented during a debate. It's also frustrating to have to refute dangerous and false claims time and time again. This is Amanda Fuller from the Kentucky Academy of Science, and I'm with the Developing Scientist Program at the University of Louisville doing a special report for Bench Talk. Hi, I'm Catherine McDermott from the Psychology Department. And I'm Nona Olson. And how old are the, how old are the kids who come? The kids who participate mm -hmm. in the Developing Scientist program are like 10-ish to, I think the oldest we've had is, yeah, 15-ish. So we, our program right now is for girls and boys, but we really want to target middle school age girls because that is when they tend to lose interest in the STEM fields. And we want to make sure that they know that there are STEM fields that they can definitely pursue and that there are research fields like psychology and cognitive development that might not always be discussed as STEM fields, but that are. One of the tasks that we do with the kids and their parents do it a lot of times too, is the Stroop task. So we show them a sheet of paper that has the names of different colors, but the colors that the words are written in don't match the actual color. Right. 
So the first word is yellow, but it's in green ink. It's in green letters. Yes. And the next one says blue, but it's in red letters. And yes. it's a big block. So I then, can see how this is a little trick on your brain. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So what we do then is we time the kids and their parents. And the first time, what you're going to do is you're going to read the word. And then the second time, you're going to say the color. Then. <laughs> okay. So we'll see then what your difference is in terms of timing. Actually, no, no. Catherine and Nona are going to make me run this test. (laughs) Yellow, blue, orange, black, red, green. So this time you'll read the color that was in. Green, red, blue, yellow, blue, black. This one's fun for kids because I think they think they're going to be really good at it. And then they try it and it's much harder than they think it is. And what's going on here? So what's the science behind this? So basically when you're reading the words, by the time we're good readers, reading comes kind of automatic. So we're reading the words and we're going really, really fast. And our brain basically does that automatically. But when you have to stop that automatic process and kind of fight it Mm -hmm. to say the color, Mm -hmm. it's a lot more difficult. So really, I think the phenomenon here and what makes this so cool is that it is all about reading. Reading is much more automatic than saying the color. Younger kids are actually really good at it. That's interesting. Because they're not great readers yet. Yeah. And people who speak two languages are also oh, good at this. Interesting. Where yeah. English is a second language. Yeah. And now I have a small poem about this. It's called Choices. I can choose. I can choose to feel isolated from joy, from laughter, from my loved ones, friends. Or I can choose laughter, things that make me laugh. I can choose to feel the love in my heart. I'm in this room right now, alone, but other people in the world are with me. Other people in the world are in the same position. I can know I'm not alone. Thank you. Great. Great. Well, what a wild collection of stories. Thanks to all of you. I think you'd agree with me. There's a lot of good information packed into an episode of Bench Talk. Next, Bench Talk the Week in Science was honored to hear this message from the White House. This gentleman truly needs no introduction. You guys did it. It's it's astounding what you did. You should not underestimate it. You know, you did it the most American way. You believed in science. You believed in hard work, and you believed there wasn't a darn thing you couldn't do if you put your minds together. You should take such great pride. We can land a rover on Mars. We can beat a pandemic. And uh, with science, hope, and vision, there's not a damn thing we can't do as a country. You all did this, the whole team. And so I just want to thank you from the bottom of my heart, tell you how presumptuous of me to say I'm proud of you, but I am so proud of you. That was amazing. And then there's this unconfirmed salutation. We thought we might as well play it too. They are the fake, fake, disgusting news. Whatever happened to fair press, whatever happened to honest reporting? Hey, well, I don't think science knows, actually. (laughs) Well, that was interesting. It's up to you to decide on its authenticity. (laughs) 
Before we conclude for this evening, we have one more recorded briefing to play for you. It just came in. This one's from Dr. Anthony Fauci. He's just been so busy being the face of the pandemic, I'm really surprised that he had time to prepare a reading for us. But let's listen. I think it's number one, Carl. The vaccines are doing what they're supposed to do. No, that's not it. Try number two, please. Masks for the fully vaccinated. The, the, the change. Oh, gosh. Let's try that last Fauci clip then. But things are going to get worse if you look at the... Well, I'm a little embarrassed, folks. Don't know what happened there. But I bet if Dr. Fauci had the time, he'd congratulate the Bench Talk team, just like I do now. Way to go, y'all. We'd also like to thank the folks at 106.5 FM Forward Radio for giving Bench Talk the airways to broadcast from for these past three years. Forward Radio is providing an invaluable service to the community. Keep those contributions to Forward Radio coming, everyone. Thanks so much for attending this celebration today. Tune in next week for another exciting episode of Bench Talk, The Week in Science.